Welcome to episode 53 of Coffee Pods and Was, the fourth in the train series, a five part series on each of the key components of training and self improvement mindset, strength, nutrition, recovery, and this week's edition, engine and capacity. Sponsored by Rain Body Fuel, the ultimate fitness focused drink to support your performance, and Ollie Clothing. Ollie help people develop holistically in the pursuit of success and aim to add clarity and convenience to information on self development. Rain gives you the fuel you need to do it. This week's episode is with cardio behemoth uh, Chris Hinshaw. Chris has an incredible history. He's done some amazing things himself, and he's also helped others achieve greatness by training with him. He's coached Kalipa, Froning, Fraser, David's daughter. It's a long, long list. Um, I love this conversation. I hope you do too. Last week's episode on recovery with Whoop is there to be listened to. And a reminder, if you have a Whoop, you can join the Coffee Pods and Wads League. The code is COMM, all caps, COMM hyphen 200828. It's just so easy to remember. It rolls off the tongue. Um, share as much as you can in your stories. I still have a few ladies' tags, so drop me a DM if you want one of those. Have a great weekend. Like, enjoy, share, and tag. Chris, thanks a for doing this. Um, you're coming on, so we're running this train series. We have a different expert in each capacity. Your capacity is aerobic capacity, so you're a specialty. But we'll start off, uh, we'll ease you in nice and gently. We'll have a bit of a chat about coffee first. So are you a big <laughs> coffee drinker? You know, what's interesting is that we live in Cookville, Tennessee, but we order our coffee from California, a place called Phil's Coffee. Oh, okay. And... Um, yeah, so there's a, a blend that, that we actually roasted and had today, and, and it's called a Julie's Blend, and it's one of their blends. But uh, if you're ever out in California, uh, Phil's, especially Northern California, it's, it's a unique experience. Is, and, there, um, is there something specific in the water in Tennessee, or why is there like a fitness magnet? <laughs> somewhere in Tennessee that's drawing all these people into one area it's like it's unusual that you all you've all settled in the same place you've got like the fittest man the fittest woman the fittest team you've got Rory lives there as well you live there like it's an unusual little hub it really is I mean for us um we two a, a little over two years ago we were we came and, and we had always visited cookville because mm-hmm. i've been working with rich since um november of 2014 and so it was always a place that that we came out matter of fact the year before moving here we had been here seven times oh, okay. um, for just a number of things seminars um mm-hmm. the opening of their new gym um just a number of different things and for us one of the things that as you move that always presents a challenge is, is getting to know people within the community. And, and Rich has created a community here that is, it's impeccable. I mean, the, the people that he has surrounded himself is, is truly the, the, the best of the best in terms of, of character. And so it just made it easy. It really made it easy to, to find a place um, that you it felt like home right away yeah that's cool um i love hearing about guests favorite coffee memories um so is there anything that stands out of maybe like a place that you were someone you were with or i like you strike me as someone who's incredibly well traveled with all the seminars and all the like you're you know i know you've ran in hawaii and you've you know you've done loads of different stuff like there must be 
it must be hard to narrow it down to one memory, I guess. Yeah, a lot of memories, but you know, I always tie in my memories around like educational pieces, things that I have have learned along the way. And and so I I do pride myself on um I, I think I have a couple of expertise, you know, one is cannolis and, and the other is espresso and and um you know I, I, I do I'm I'm always fascinated by espresso, but it always comes around, you know education like that's what resonates with me and so mm -hmm. even though you may have a hundred different experiences um and trying different things the memory is tied into some sort of education something i learned along the way and yeah. i was in south africa and um i was in this really boutique -y coffee place run by this this old hippie guy and he was super arrogant and almost hostile um this guy that owned the place and i was fascinated by his process and how he was making his coffee and it was like he had these trade secrets and things that almost so much so that you know like for example it's a red flag for me when any coach doesn't want to talk about their methodology yeah right that they want to hold it tight to the vest they don't want to share it um that tells me that they're insecure in in what they're doing right they, yeah. they they're not confident in going out and finding the next piece of information and so i felt this way with this guy um and so but he made an amazing cup of coffee <laughs> and so it was like that is not an accident this is a guy that is a master of his craft and so you know that right i mean you run into people like that and mm. that's the beauty of 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 finding someone who is focused in a particular profession for a long amount of time. They're a master in their craft and what a missed opportunity it is to not dive into some detail because this person is, is going to respect your time and they're gonna give you the core, the juice, the good mm -hmm. stuff. And so for me, this is an opportunity and, and um, you know, coffee being a passion, um, I wanted to talk to him, but, but again, this arrogance and so I thought, why not just buy some of his coffee as, as you know, like Smaller a, brand a show, yeah, right, a good faith. So I tell him I wanna, I wanna buy the beans that that he is is just finishing roasting, and he turns around and he like tells me he says, you are not allowed to grind these. It's four days. You're, I, these are not ready four more days and then you can have it. I'm like, what are you talking about? You just you roasted, it's like ready to go. And he's like, you, you, okay, I'm not selling you this product unless it's four days that it's, it's, that's part of the process. And I'm like, really? And um, yeah, he went into this whole elaborate explanation that was way too scientific for me. But I'm like, wow, his conviction is like, okay, you know what? Uh, I'm, now from now on, I'm waiting four days. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, South Africa. Yeah, it was just, it was an amazing experience. And to think that that actually happened there. Yeah. Um, yeah. He probably what a similar story on a podcast in South Africa being like, this fucking idiot came in and he was like, I want to grind your beans right now. And I had to put a set them straight. Typical oh. American coming in, wanting to grind beans. I know. There's always this hesitation too of like, you want to balance, you know, that, that, that arrogance and like, no, 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 but I'm kind of knowledgeable in coffee. And you know, it was like, I, I didn't, I stayed away from that argument because yeah, he would have yeah. picked it apart. Oh, yeah. Cal, you're San Francisco. You don't know anything about coffee. 
Yeah. They come out for a run, though. You put him in his place fairly quick there, I'd say. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. That is true. Yeah. But I always find those pieces fascinating. And I find that it's, um, it's a miss that a lot of people have when you come across somebody who has specialized in a particular area for a lifetime. Mm. And the, it's, it's those conversations that are, are so incredible because what you find is, yeah, you have an interest in what they're doing, but you find these parallels in what you're doing. Mm. And that to me is, is fascinating. Meaning an expert in making coffee like this, this gentleman that I, that I met and, and spoke to, there were a lot of similarities in the way in which he behaved in, in his, the managing of his business and, and um, being so successful um, and, and looking at his advantages, you know, in terms of the way in which he's, he's producing and, and sharing his, his expertise with the community. Yeah. And there's so many common threads that you walk out of conversations like that feeling confident about your future and the things that you're doing, even though it had nothing to do with you. Yeah. And because we're always, I think, you in feel this the converse of that then where, you know, if someone comes to you that you're that person, like you're the person who, as you say, has dedicated their lives to a certain like path for knowledge. And, you know, you've got you've built up that experience and you've built up that you know, library, like in a, you're, you're basically an encyclopedia for all things like running endurance and, you know, cardiovascular training and stuff. And do you feel that when people approach you to ask you questions that you kind of, you know, you have a responsibility to answer questions that are asked, or, I mean, you've done tons of interviews over the years. Um, like I remember watching the United movement and it was, your passion is clear and it's audible and it's visible when you're watching it. Like, and, you know, even, the interviews you do for the CrossFit documentaries and stuff like that. Like, do you, like, do you find it strange being uh, like held aloft as someone who's knowledgeable and the go-to guy for, Oh, I need to ask this question. I, I'll listen to this guy talk. Or is it something that you kind of adapted to pretty quickly once you became recognized? But that's, this is the part about passion that passion is authentic. Mm. You know, it's funny that I, we we do post-course surveys. So after an aerobic capacity course, what we do is we provide people a survey. By the way, I do love your outfit today. <laughs> I mean, I got to say, you look sharp. I bought this. I bought this uh, during the United Movement. You know, you were, you gave, I can't remember how oh, yeah. t-shirts for charity. So I bought it during yeah, we, that. And it arrived, uh, it arrived two weeks ago. That's, yeah, well, they're shipping things over to yeah. Europe now by boat. Hmm. But yeah, that was a, you know, that was an opportunity to donate into that cause. Well, thanks. Yeah, no, you look beautiful. Boy, (laughs) very sharp. No, but I think that like we, we see in those surveys, this, this feedback about passion and passion is, I I don't really like, it's interesting to hear that because it's almost like you, you're, it's, it's, it's one of those embarrassment like situations where it's like, wow, like they're really saying I'm passionate it's just authentic. And, mm-hmm. and that's where you truly know that you're doing something that you love. And so when someone asks questions, because you love the subject matter so much, it's not ever a nuisance yeah. because you enjoy it, right? You love those, those conversations. Um, the hardest part, honestly, is, is, is calibrating when you meet somebody, your level of knowledge versus their level yeah, of knowledge. Okay. So if they have a, 
PhD in exercise physiology or if they're just some recreational athlete, there's a calibration and it is up to you to calibrate to their level. Yeah. Um, you know, I always tell people that benchmark is the benchmark is, is that if you're going to share information with somebody, it must be something where they then can turn around and tell a third party that same piece of information and, and that third party would understand it. And a lot of times people talk over, you know, the other person's head and, and, um, a lot of time filter and then just doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. And that's what, and then I think a lot of times that is somebody who hasn't done enough public speaking or seminars to calibrate, like, why do we need to call it, you know, some scientific name for, you know, lactic acid, lactate and, and this acidity. And then now we're going to break down acidity and we're going to talk about potassium ions and hydrogen ions. Well, you know what? The layman can just look at that as fatigue. Yeah. 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 Right. I always think the same um, thing. Is it, I can't remember what show it was on. It might have been The Simpsons where someone was like, you know, explain it to me like I'm a 10-year-old. And then it was explained. It was like, okay, explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old. You know, it's just like, you need to tell the person that the level that you're working at. Like, and I do think that sometimes you hear like physios talk or, you know, like uh, movement mechanic experts talking. And like within about three minutes, I'm like, okay, I'm out. He's, he's, he has stopped referring to it as a knee. And now he's talking about different parts of the knee. And yeah. I don't know what's being talked about anymore. You know, that's a skill though. I think like, um, like in my seminar, one of the things, I mean, I'll give you an example. So you get a broad range of people and Nicole Carroll, you know, the head of CrossFit training, Hmm. she said to me that, that it is your job as a presenter to provide information that satisfies the entire population of people that are watching you. So because you don't know that, that population, you have to cover a range of content to find pieces that resonate with the entire audience. Mm. And so part of it is, is that, you know, I, I, I learned from being in sales for 25 years on how to share pieces of information where it's a very simplistic piece of information um, that is needed for the, 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 the new person, but the person who's been around with a lot of experience, they need to look upon that piece of information almost in terms of humor. And so like a good example of that is that I talk about when I took Jason to Jason Kalipa to the track the first time and um, we were doing a mile for time and he lined up in the middle of the turn on the track. And I was like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I thought we're doing a mile for time. And I'm like, Jay, not that mile for time, but why are you in the middle of the turn? He's like, well, what's it matter? Yeah. And I told, you know, like, and I explained this story and explaining like this experience that I had, but people are listening. And if you're aware of the track, you almost think it's funny. But what if you don't know that there's four corners on a track? And what if each, you don't know that each corner is separated by a hundred meters and it's 400 meters around. And this is the direction that you run in the track. Um, and so, yeah, you're presenting this, this case study this story, but in reality, you're covering pieces of information that some find humorous, but others find is knowledge. Mm. And that's the trick is that you have to be able to share pieces of information that covers the entire spectrum. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Um, You discovered CrossFit around 2008 and you Mm -hmm. became enamored with it. 
um like prior to that you had a pretty stunning history of like Ironman races you've represented your country you've done countless triathlon triathlons like what was it what was it about CrossFit that was so appealing having done something so different up until that point so that there's two appealing parts first I was in as an athlete so as an athlete you know I have and to, to go to Santa Cruz Central, you know, the, the mothership, and, yeah. and that was cool. So to be around Eva T and Rob Miller, Jimmy Baker, you know, Michelle Moots, Annie Sakamoto, like to be around that group was incredible, like as a coincidence. Um, but as an athlete, what appealed to me was after it repaired my body from just the volume of doing triathlons, I felt that rush that I loved so much as an athlete, a competitor, that anxiety. So, you know, the, if you picture like the Hawaiian Ironman, the one in Kona, the world championships, imagine you're sitting there, there's 1500 people in the water and the clock is counting down and you can't stop time. And as it gets closer and closer to, they fire a cannon at the start of that race. It's so rad. And it's just counting down. How would it be more intimidating than fire a cannon? <laughs> well, I've never, what's ironic is I've never actually heard the cannon go off because by the time they say 10, my head's down and I'm going. Yeah, because yeah. the problem is, is that with 1500 people behind you, because I would be right in you know, the, the pole position there, I was fairly confident in my swimming um, you didn't want to get pulled under. Mm. So if someone grabbed my leg, you know what? It could be a hundred meters underwater. And so that's where it's like, but it's that adrenaline rush, that, that anxiety. And I loved it. I love that. The thing I missed most about competing was that rush, that charge, that feeling of alive. I always wish that I could stop time with, you know, 10 seconds to go and, and hold on to that that mm. I missed. And so for the, when I went back into CrossFit, I felt that I felt, and again, remember Ironman is a, it's an individual sport, right? It's not a team sport. And so you're doing things, you know, for yourself, but you're part of this community and that's what CrossFit was. Yeah. You're testing your own ability, but you're part of a community. And I felt that rush again. And that to me was was the initial attraction. I loved that. I loved um, being able to do things that were seemingly impossible. Um, and, and those when workouts were seemingly impossible, that rush was bigger than when I knew I had it in control. And that's what appealed to me is do things that were unknown and unexpected because I got that buzz. Yeah. And that was as an athlete, that's what drew me in. Um, that's that's why I felt that's why I loved competing um, was, was truly just that rush. Yeah. You mentioned there, Jason Kalipa, like you helped him on his way from, he would have been, you know, not very good at endurance, like not very good at those kind of longer, maybe longer runs and stuff like that. And you helped him on his way. Yeah. It was really really bad. (laughs) Well, you said it, I'm not going to say it. Uh, You helped him on his way to, to a second place finish in 2013. And then, I mean, like after that, the list, it's an insane list. So like, I mean, you've also worked with like jujitsu competitors and Olympians and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But even just in CrossFit, you've got like Froning, Kalipa, Fraser, David's daughter, Sigma's daughter, um, Camille, China Cho, Noel, some Brookwells, BKG. Yeah. That's like, I just 
copied like half the list. Like it's an endless list. You've had like three dozen podium finishers. In 2016, every person on the top of a podium had worked with you. So like Matt, Catherine and the Mayhem team. Like that is just incredible. Like it must be an incredible feeling of like validation and like confidence in what you're doing that like, you know, there's, there's no argument then there can't be an argument that like, you know, well, he reckons that it's like, look at the podiums. Like it's no coincidence. Do you know, it must, because if anyone ever had any doubts about the way that you were doing things or the way that you were like explaining things or, you know, the, your methodologies or your modal, m- m- the way that you were doing it, yeah, they, they can't really come back when you, when you can just say like, well, look at this list I've got, Do you know, it must be an incredible feeling. Without a doubt it is. Um, I mean, without, that's why I'm so grateful that Jason Kalipa gave me a chance back in 2012, um, 2013. I, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that a, a, an individual of that caliber, and, and you have to remember, you roll back the clock to 2013, the, the methodology, the, 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 the things that I was proposing to Jason um, was unheard of in the sport. People yeah. were not doing it. And one of the things when Jason called and asked if I would help him, you know, at the end of 2012 was he told me that, you know, I want you to know that I'm interested in everything that you're doing. I'm very interested and I'll ask questions, but I will never question your decisions. I will never question your direction and I will always do everything that you tell me to do. And that made him coachable. You know, the fact that, that even in the, in the peak of the criticism, and a lot of criticism from CrossFit HQ about the things that I was doing um, was, was, I'm sure, tough on him. You know, I mean, I had Jason Kalipa. Here's a guy that weighs 220 pounds doing a 20-mile run three weeks before the CrossFit Games. And that got out. Yeah. And that you, was Do you think the criticism of. from HQ was because it was that, like, you know, that kind of linear training that they kind of don't or didn't want done that they wanted to be multimodal and doing everything at once whereas you were like we'll do cardiovascular training and they didn't like that well it was their definition of intensity and it was the belief that if if you wanted to to create maximal fitness then you had to operate within certain time domains and and energy systems and i was taking jason into incredibly long time domains and I was developing abilities aerobically, his slow twitch fibers. And it wasn't just by accident. I mean, there's, there's incredible, you know, there's mountains of science that substantiate the things that was being done as well as just practical application by myself. Hmm. And so when I was looking at in, and by this time, let's face it, I'd been doing CrossFit for almost five years. I was aware of the methodology and there were things in there that just didn't make any sense. You know, like how is it possible that you're doing sprinting based intervals and you want to become good at a long time domain? Yeah. When you train sprinting, if you train nothing but speed, you know what you get good at? You get good at speed because that's the stimulus that you're putting on the body. Remember you put a stimulus on the body, you create an adaptation and Jason was not good into long time domains. And so by me focusing on pacing, um, interval work, 
um, creating a multitude of intensities. You know, he worked on 13 different intensities. Um, it was unheard of. And I think that, you know, I look back on being a part of athletes and I'm grateful for Jason and I'm grateful for being a part of, you know, athletes getting in and winning at the CrossFit games. I, but a lot of that I think is, is their win. You know I mean? Yeah, yeah. I'm just one of the players. I feel that the biggest advantage and the, the strongest compliment is that they want to come back and be coached again, you know, the following day. And as coaches, yeah. that's the number one compliment. But I'll tell you when CrossFit in 20, 16 came in and they said, you know, we are seeing what you're doing and, and we'd love to partner up with you. And we would love to take your aerobic capacity course and call it CrossFit aerobic capacity. And, and we see that the change that you've made. And, and I got to say that I applauded CrossFit for their willingness to look and listen hmm. um, and, and to evolve. They're trying to create greatness in this population of people that was ignored hmm. and they saw that there was change being made and um they they appreciated it and that to me was a sign that this is an amazing organization that's why nicole carroll is on a level that is so people are not aware of 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 her efforts to create change within CrossFit from an educational standpoint. And people think it's just education and me sh sharing this methodology with the community. It's not. It's education in shaping the effectiveness and efficiencies of the sport. Yeah. Um, I think, like you mentioned there about Jason saying, I'll do whatever it takes. You know, I'll, you know I won't question anything that you say. It must be great working with athletes who are like, you know, desperate to improve and have proven that they'll do anything possible to improve in other areas. But I imagine there's a lot of time pressure there and a lot of like, you know, pressure for results and sometimes quick results as well, because they're, especially those athletes, they're used to success. Like, you know, they're used to mastering things. As you say, they're masters of their trade. Like they're used to starting off snatching and pretty quickly mastering it and climbing up the weights. They're used to mastering one bar of muscle up and quickly, quickly, pretty quickly stringing them together. So I guess like your aerobic capacity is a bit more of a slow burner, like because there's lots of different intervals and lots of different intensities, as you said. Was there ever pressure there of like, you know, come on, Chris, we need some results here? Wow, that, wow, you are good. <laughs> That's a I mean, so what's interesting is that uh, a lot of athletes, they'll start out and they're apprehensive, right? They're nervous. And mm. it doesn't matter if you've won the CrossFit Games or you're brand new to running or any, you know, sport. You're, you're nervous. You're concerned because you have a lack of experience. And mm. so it is tough when an athlete like a Frazier comes in and, and he says, you know what? I'll, I'll, let's do two running workouts a week. That's it. Well, when you get an athlete and it's only two per week, you have to make sure that that's the highest and best use of his time. Yeah. You can't make mistakes. It has to be spot on. And so the problem is, is, is in the endurance world, coaches can cover up mistakes with volume. Yeah. And because they're doing endurance by covering it up with more endurance, it's, 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 not necessarily going to be perceived as a negative yeah. and so you know a good example of that is is you know coaches that would 
prescribe a, a, let's say, running workout. They prescribe, obviously, the overall volume of a workout, but within the workout, they have an interval, that distance of that interval, right, how far, um, and that could be meters or time, um, and then they prescribe the intensity of that interval, how fast are you doing it, um, and then they also, though, prescribe the recovery between the intervals, those three qualities. And if you're doing, let's say, a 300-meter interval in one minute, um, many coaches, what they'll do afterwards in the recovery, because they're not quite clear on, on, on what they're doing and they're not quite clear on the, the skill set of the athlete, they'll cover up their mistakes by doing a catch-all in the recovery. Meaning, what I want you to do is I want you to um, walk. 100 meters. Well, if you walk 100 meters, that 100 meters, I've seen people take four minutes to do yeah, 100 yeah. meters. <laughs> and crawl so, the first 50 and then walk. Right. So if they mess up on their, their, let's say, 300 meters in 60 seconds, which is way too fast for this particular athlete, the athlete will then be able to recover because they're doing a four-minute slow walk for 100 meters. Yeah. And so that's the mistake is that you must get to know these athletes to be able to personalize everything. So meaning you're going to do um, three rounds and each round is going to have three sets of 300 meters and hundred meter walk. And Frazier, what you're going to do is you're going to do your 355 seconds and then you're going to do your hundred meter walks in one minute. And then in between rounds, you're going to take three minutes of rest. So every single aspect is controlled and prescribed yeah. so that you maximize the value out of it. And that's a, that's a hard thing to do for coaches that don't specialize in the space. But if you're going to maximize efficiency in that particular, that adaptation and that workout, you must do that. And that's why when I started, I coached, for free for three years because CrossFit athletes are unique. They're not specialists. Yeah. And every single piece of scientific like information about elite athletes is specialists in one particular area. And these are not even, you know, Frazier, Froning, they're all just generalists in everything. Um, and that's interestingly enough, 99% of the population. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus. so I tell yeah, you what, so, I, I could fucking listen to you talk all day, Chris. <laughs> well, so like I would like Catherine. Catherine, I started working with her when she was nineteen. Yeah. And her number one thing she wanted to do is is she wanted to improve her mile time. That was a mile time. That was it. And so soon we realized, like, you know what? I think I could get you down to five twenty. And we got down in the low five twenty, five twenty three range. And I, and this time now she was working with Ben Bergeron, who I get along really well. And I had a call with them and I said, look, I know you want to get down to 520 in this space. I need another day. I need three days per week. And Ben said, no, you know what? You get two. So what do you do? As a coach, you now have to come up with the next piece so that Katrin wants to come back and be coach made to me tomorrow. Hmm. So what do you say to her? Well, I look at her results and I go, you know, your limitation in your mile is your speed. If I can improve your 400 time, I think I can indirectly improve your mile time. So what we're going to do is 
maintain your 523 mile speed and we're going to now target the 400 meter speed we the goal we had to get down was the goal was to try and get her down to sub 62 we got down to 63 seconds and i had the same conversation i need three days answer was no so what did we do we pivoted to 3,000 meters 12 minutes and so now what she had was a skill set in one minute a skill set in five to six minutes and a skill set in uh you know, 12, 13 minutes. And that's what we as coaches do is that we are looking at the availability because no CrossFit athlete has unlimited time to focus on one thing. And that's what makes them special. Do you, like, do you ever feel, I don't know, I guess it's, maybe it's not as black and white as like either feeling inspired or feeling intimidated. But like you mentioned Ben Berger on there, like working with other coaches, is it like, do you ever feel kind of, you know sometimes like I feel like a bit of an imposter like if I'm interviewing someone and I think like oh I don't really deserve to be talking to this person or like do you ever feel like that when you're coaching an athlete who you know like we'll say Rich Froning or Matt Fraser who are at the top of their game and they arrive with their coach or whatever and you think well this coach got them to where they are and then I'm coming in telling them to do something and what if that coach thinks I'm wrong or what if you know, on the drive home, they're saying, the coach is saying like, God, I don't know what he was talking about. And he's saying that, like, do you ever have any of those thoughts? Or are you sure, so set and sure in your uh, knowledge that it just doesn't phase you at all? No. So that would be a mistake if, if you, you think that you know all aspects. I mean, those are the coaches that I'd run away from. If, if a coach is saying that, <laughs> that they're not receptive to different ideas, then, then they're, that's a dangerous coach. I am, I, I, you know, I learn from a lot of different places. You know, I learn uh, from, from other coaches um, and I love talking to them and I like having conversations with them about different ideas. Yeah. Um, and in some cases they're off base and in some cases I am off base. Um, you know, I, the reason why Jason Kalipa appealed to me is because this was a guy that won the CrossFit Games in 2008. And this is a chance for me to learn from a champion, you know, like his, and so like, I also then do it from, you know, scientific journals and, and literature, but then I also learn from experimenting on myself and what works and doesn't work. And so those four areas, I'm constantly gathering and, and, and assessing pieces of information because, you know, we all have cracks in our knowledge and what we're always trying to do is fill those cracks. And yeah those the, the places to fill them is in those four areas and so yeah i really enjoy having conversations um you know one of the things i'm i'm, I'm a head coach at the power monkey uh camp and there's 20 specialists that come in there and not one coach makes much money when they go there they just don't the offering is that you get to sit around 20 other coaches and yeah. and we hone in our craft in those conversations. And I will never give up my space at Power Monkey, you know, Dave Durrani and, and what Shane Garrity have done because it's access to that knowledge source. Yeah. That's why I tell people all the time, you know what? Ask questions. And every athlete that I work with, ask questions. I may not know the answer, but it, what I wanna do is, is I wanna understand your mindset and where you're going in thought process because it shapes where you should be going in terms of sourcing content information. And if you know me, I never hold back on 
what I know. I mm. share in my seminar, I share every single piece of information that I know in the amount of time that I have. And a lot of people will sit and go, God, I can't believe you're giving all of this away. But what it forces you to do is go out and learn more. Like yeah. pacing. Pacing is something that everybody knows about now. It's a common, it's the biggest buzzword in the sport. But in 2012, 2013, I was criticized for it. Yeah. So what you do is you share these methodologies and you want people to understand them. And that charges you with going out and finding and learning the next layer. Yeah. That's what we as coaches should be doing. We, and educators, we should be driving adaptation in terms of that knowledge base education. Yeah. Um, you've had your other cap on too. So I remember I had Greg from concept on for yeah. a chat a while ago yeah. and he mentioned the ski swim workout in Wadapalooza as one of his favorites where a concept machine yeah. was used and you were behind that, right? Yeah, that was a really, a, that was a, I like, I love writing workouts, but yeah, that was a, a fascinating workout that, you know, I wrote for the individuals. Do you um, enjoy adapted it? Do you enjoy like seeing it being done or is, is there, do you like, I imagine you get that same nervousness you all that you'd almost get from competing where you're like, Jesus, what if this doesn't work the way that I, that it worked in my head or the way that it worked when we practiced it? Like, what if it's not as good a test as I thought it was, or what if it's too hard or something like that? Um, you know, that's interesting because I, I, I feel like my intellectual property is writing of workouts. I, mm. I really genuinely love writing workouts. I write hundreds of them. And, you know, like in, in 2015, I wrote workouts for 55 athletes, um, at the games and every week it was different workouts personalized and while having a full-time job, cause I was doing it for free. Mm. Um, and, and it's something that, um, as an athlete, I always enjoyed, you know, manipulating those qualities that we had talked about earlier and, yeah. and driving particular adaptations. Um, so when I write a workout like that, now I'm fairly confident in it. I, I, um, what I liked about the workout was this concept of penalizing elite athletes for mistakes. Yeah. And the, the concept was, is that you had to do a certain number of double unders. Um, and if you missed in a double under, you had a penalty and which meant you had to do more on the ski erg. And if you think about it, it was a workout that they said, Chris, we want you to write a workout centered around swimming. And what I wanted to do was do things that mimicked the same movement pattern as a swim stroke in terms of upper body. So that pull. Yeah. So when I was given equipment options, like I really wanted to do a rope climb in that workout, you know, that pull and, and I wanted people to do a static hold also on that rope climb as a penalty. I was like, but you just wanted someone to drown, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a whole nother story. I did have a workout called the fear of drowning. Um, but no, in that workout, what I did was it was all pole related. So if you think about it, swimming, the pole, the skier, the pole, and then the movement of a double under is a very small abbreviated pole. Mm. And the unsuspecting athlete wouldn't know that. And they would mess up. And yeah. it, would, it would create for the fan an experience that, that were there watching and they realize when they miss now all of a sudden, wow, there's a consequence. And that yeah. person just went from first to third yeah. that I liked. Yeah. So I like writing workouts for 
competitions. Like I wrote a workout for um, um, one of the biggest competitions in Spain last year, and uh, it was one of the final workouts, and it was on the Concept2 Bike Erg. And it was a workout that they announced. It was the first workout. They said, we're releasing the final workout of the competition. And what it was, was riding this, the, the bike erg. And they announced what it was. And it didn't seem overly difficult. Um, and so people were not overwhelmed by it. And with 30 seconds to go, um, they had the remaining you know, 20 people. And with 30 seconds to go, the announcer said, OK, Athletes, you know, 30 seconds, and then the officials on that queue went over to the bike and pulled the seat post out of the concept of biker. And all the athletes are like, wait, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> and so doing things like that where, where you are, are testing athletes, but you're doing it for the fan, right? Yeah, the yeah. fan's watching that and they're going, man, that's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. I've got some questions like sent in and then yeah. one, I've been dying to talk to you about this since I saw you talk to Rory on United in Movement and well, two things struck me. So one, like we've already talked about your passion and stuff like that, but your ability to speak, like there was an issue. I think it was actually our issue. I think it was Filthy 150 had an issue, a technological issue between Sean Sweeney and PD Savage yep. or something. And you, yeah. it was basically Rory just said like, right, Chris, I need you to just talk for like 45 minutes. And you were just like, okay. And you just launched into speaking. And he was like dipping in and out every so often. But you were just like, you were just in the flow and it was amazing to watch. But one thing <laughs> you said was you were talking about exertion and recovery after exertion. Yeah. And you were saying that like a, a common <clears throat> thing that's done is that people will like hop on an assault bike or start pedaling or a concept bike or whatever. And you were yeah. explaining, like, that's something that I've done if I have access to one. So it's, it's a competition or something. I'd be like, oh, I better go and flush out my legs because it's yep. what I see being done. And then yeah. your point was that, like, if you don't do that when you're training 364 days of the year and you suddenly do it on this one day, all it's going to do is fatigue you more. Like, it's not going to fix anything because you need to, like, what I gathered from it was, you basically need to train your body to recover using certain methods so that you can then use those methods to recover when you need to recover. Yep. Um, yeah. So I would actually, I mean, this, this concept is something that is, is nothing new. I mean, back in, in, you know, my training days, we would, we would do recovery workouts. Um, we would do recovery intervals and this was what we would call active recovery. And yeah. there's some confusion in our sport about active recovery, right? Like if, if I said to you, you know, Hey, so tomorrow you're going to do an active recovery day. And it's like, Oh, okay. What's the workout? And it's like, uh, it's a 60 minute row. And it's like, well, that's pretty much in my world, a workout, right? It's not active recovery. That's a workout. Active recovery is, is, is really, it's about the intent that, that you're really moving and clearing fatigue in a similar movement pattern, muscle group that just created the fatigue. So a running sprint and then a walk, a running mm. sprint or a jog, right? The jog or the walk is active recovery. It's the same movement pattern, same muscle group, but it's the intent is to clear fatigue. And so, you know, I would, I would, I, I, I would go at the games and I would see at the games, you know, a lot of elite level athletes and they would hop on the, the concept to, uh, I mean the uh, assault bike and they would just be spinning after an event 
on that. And I was always fascinated by the, this, the level of knowledge. And it took me a while, access of athletes and where they were and where the sport was. Because truly, if you got on an assault bike after a very hard workout or, a, or an event, it's an incredible, it's the best thing that you could be doing. And it was shocking how many were doing it. They were doing it too low of an intensity, um, which caught me a little by surprise, right? The intensity, if you're going to do active recovery, it needs to be closer to lactate threshold to maximize clearance of that, that fatigue. But I would go up and ask them and I'm like, you know, Hey, so how'd you come up with this idea of doing this afterwards? Like, where'd you come up with it? Like I was, cause I'm curious on that. Oh, I, I, I just saw Josh Bridges doing it. And so that's why I'm doing it. So I'd go over to Josh Bridges and I'm like, Hey, so how did you learn how to, to do it and this and he says oh i just you know because i needed to sit down and do something and so this was just like the easiest i'm like would well, you train this way and he's all no i just thought that this would be the best way to kind of just recover and it struck me of like wow people are doing these things and although they they have part of it downright right so a lot of these elite athletes just their intuition is spot on but they're missing the physiology side. Right. And, and what they're really lacking is, is that if you are not training your muscles that are moving to extract that, that lactate out of the bloodstream, right? So your slow twitch recovery fibers, what they do is they will consume lactic acid. So your slow twitch aerobic fibers, they take that lactate and it consumes it as a fuel. And when it takes and consumes that lactate as a fuel, it takes the fatigue causing properties. I mentioned like potassium ions and hydrogen ions, that acidity, and it burns it out of your body. But it has to pull it out of the bloodstream and process it through the slow twitch fibers. If you don't practice that, your body's or those muscles doing that are being used on the assault bike to pull that lactate out of the bloodstream, it's not efficient in doing it. And the other thing that I mentioned is that their intensity is too low. So if you think about it, if you end up um, after doing Fran, imagine the circulation of your blood, right? Your heart rate is you know, through the roof. It's probably at your max. Yeah. Imagine the circulation of your blood. Your bloodstream is filled with lactate. And so any movement you do after Fran you know, while your heart rate is high, you will be training those muscles on how to pull that lactate and consume it as a fuel. And when it does, it just takes it out of the body. So no matter what you do after Fran, you can improve your ability to clear fatigue. So you can do very slow active recovery deadlifts with the PVC pipe, and you will train your deadlift muscles on how to actually clear fatigue at a faster rate, which will help that's, you during workouts. That's the explanation that I bastardized so many times trying to explain to people. Like I remember I was talking to my own coach and I was like, oh, is this in a Chris Hinshaw? And he was talking about if you're really tired after doing a workout, do deadlifts. And he was like, what? And I was like, no, but like with a dowel. And he was like, why would I do it with a dowel? And I was like, oh, I don't know, something to do with fuel. I can't remember what he said. And he was like, we'll find the video. And I was like, no, it was on a live YouTube video. I don't know if it's there. So now I'm glad that I have it down on tape well, that it is a thing. So let's talk about that. So let's say you do a Metcon. Yeah. Um, what happens? 
you know, let Fran. The reason why Fran is difficult is because you have this push-pull going on. You have all these different muscle groups that are being used at a very high rate of force, right? And so with that force, you are recruiting fast twitch fibers to accommodate the, that demand for force. By doing so, you are using your anaerobic uh, energy system, that anaerobic pathway. By using that pathway, you are creating lactic acid, lactate and this acidity, these fatigue-causing properties. So what happens is, is that your muscles being used in those two movements, right, the pull-ups and the thrusters, you are building up this lactic acid in the muscles that are moving. And eventually, because of the intensity, you overload those muscles, meaning the ability for those muscles to clear any accumulation of lactic acid, right? The slow twitch fibers are working to clear it. So you overload them. So what happens? It spills into the neighboring space and into the neighboring muscle group. And why? It's just trying to find slow twitch fibers to clear it. Again, remember those slow twitch aerobic fibers take that lactate and they, when it does consume it as a fuel, it takes the fatigue causing properties out of the body. But when you overload these neighboring muscle groups, it's gonna ultimately spill into the bloodstream and that's what's called lactate shuttle. And when it hits the bloodstream, it's just trying to find vacant muscle groups, slow twitch muscle groups to try and clear it, to burn it off. That's the way the body self-corrects itself. And so what happens in Fran is that you quickly overload every available muscle fiber in your body. And so at the end of Fran, your bloodstream is just flooded with lactic acid. So now the mistake that people are doing is they don't do anything after Fran or anything after a high intensity Metcon. And I would consider a high intensity Metcon anything that's a six minute time domain and under. So anything under six minutes, you have an opportunity to focus on a movement pattern that you are weak in, in terms of what you believe is limiting your overall performance. So an example of that would be push-ups. If I ask you, like, you know, Peter, how many, how many push-ups can you do unbroken? So straight, think of your number. Normal Just straight push-ups, push-ups, like yep. 15, I'd say. Okay, and what's the reason why you can't do one more? Because I is it I have an unfortunate combination of being heavy and weak. <laughs> so you're saying it could be your strength, right? Yeah. Right. It could be your strength, meaning your intensity, or it could be because you just get tired. Yeah. I would say if you can do 15, it's not your strength. You're able to do 15 of them, right? And so if you want to do 16, it may be that your recovery is limiting your performance, not your intensity. So remember those three qualities, you got your volume, you got your intensity, and you got your recovery. What we as coaches do is manipulate adaptation to target, I mean, we manipulate these stimuluses to create a particular adaptation. So if you wanna do a half marathon, what do I do every week? I dose you with more volume and then body adapts in that direction. The same thing holds true with recovery is if your recovery is limiting performance, then what do I need to do? I need to accelerate your body's ability to clear fatigue. So if I can clear fatigue at a faster rate while you are doing push-ups, meaning you're just not getting as tired, then you will be able to do more. So if we can clear that, that localized push-up lactic acid in those muscle groups and you could burn it off at a faster rate, 
then we've accomplished what we want is more push-ups. And so at the end of a Metcon, we haven't built up localized fatigue like you are in the push-up. What we have done after a Metcon is it's in the bloodstream. So I don't need to do an active recovery, like for example, a running sprint into a jog. You know, I can do anything after a Metcon because it's in my blood and it's throughout my entire body. So I can do, I can do some core work. I can do some Russian twists at a very, very slow pace. And you know what's gonna happen is some of the energy in my obliques doing this Russian twist movement is gonna come from the consumption of lactate and I will consume that lactate by pulling it out of the bloodstream, but I will process that lactate and clear those fatigue causing uh, metabolites from doing a Russian twist. And so what I'm able to do is target areas that because of the Metcon, what I'm doing is extending the workout, but I'm changing the focus. I'm no longer focused on the intensity quality, I'm focusing on the recovery quality. And what we wanna do is, is be aware of though, if let's say you're doing deadlifts with a PVC pipe nice and slow, those muscles in the deadlift are pulling that lactate-rich blood um, and consuming it as a fuel in the deadlift muscle groups. But imagine if you now are doing that slowly for two minutes. After two minutes, what's happened to your heart rate? Yeah, it's, it's going to drop. Yeah. So that blood's not circulating. And so part what you have to recognize is that you've got to keep that lactate-rich blood circulating to maximize the concentration in the area that you're trying to adapt. That's why you need to ideally keep your heart rate closer to this lactate threshold or your maximum sustainable heart rate. So for me, that would be a heart rate of around 160. So for me, what I would do is I would do a high intensity Metcon, just take Fran. And what I would do is I would be monitoring my heart rate. And what I wanna make sure is that it doesn't drop below what we call aerobic threshold, which I would use Maffetone method of 180 minus my age. So for me, if it starts dropping below like 122, 120, what I have to do is something to elevate my heart rate because my blood's not circulating. So I can do two minutes of deadlifts. I'm down below 122. Now I can hop on an assault bike and bump it back up again. The reason why an assault bike is so great is look at the number of muscles being used. Yeah. So imagine if your goal is to ma maximize the removal of lactate you want to maximize the muscle groups and keep the heart rate elevated. That's why it's great. But if you never practice it, your muscles ability to pull lactate out of the blood, it's inefficient. And all you're doing is creating more fatigue. It takes practice like anything, the more practice, the more efficient the body becomes at that movement pattern. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So listener questions then yeah. got like, so breathing i've like i've heard everything from into your nose out your mouth or separate your breathing totally from what you're doing or you're so good you like so good. nasal only breathing is another thing like I, I tried nasal only breathing for a 5k before and i full-on thought i was going to die so like i genuinely was like this is it like if people are gonna ask how do you die and it's like oh he refused to breathe through his mouth and he collapsed 
like is there is there best advice for breathing is it so is it a case of like change you know change it up a bit do maybe one day nasal only or do like you know maybe do your stretching nasal only or something like that or like is it a big factor uh how you breathe once you kind of keep it steady so breathing is a it's a it's one of these things that's talked about a lot and yeah. like anything that's talked about a lot everybody wants to add more value into these subjects and breathing has become way too complicated we have to really roll back breathing to what is the most important basic techniques that provide value i mean we can look at any weightlifting movement and and we can make it overly complicated and that's what happened to breathing breathing has has gotten to the point where it's like i'm confused and we must look at breathing as 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 what we're trying to accomplish and and roll it to the most elementary basic concepts and that is that the brain needs to know when the next dose of energy is coming that's the most important thing because our oxygen is our energy right our aerobic system is oxygen yeah. our oxygen goes in and converts either a carb or a fat primarily very rarely a protein into this energy so what we need is we need to have a reliable and predictable breathing pattern so that the brain knows when the next dose of energy is coming. If it's random, meaning if your breathing pattern is the brain would have no idea. And so it can't relax the muscles. And so you will encounter this with people. It's like, I don't know what happened to me in yesterday's run, but it was the greatest run I have ever had. And it's probably because on accident, they established a rhythm to their breath. Swimmers, without a doubt, have the best rhythm of the breath. Weightlifters and gymnasts, by far the worst. <laughs> Why? Because swimmers, when they swim, right? Breath, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four every four count, they're collecting a dose of energy. Hmm. So what does the brain do in that case? It can settle the muscles because it knows when the next dose is coming. Yeah. And so what I tell people all the time is that you have to establish that rhythm. You have to, it's very important. Now you also must be aware though of when your breathing gets out of control. So I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but like, I mean, a coach saying, get control of your breathing. Yeah. What does that even mean? <laughs> right? Like, it, usually means, I'm, it usually means I'm about to collapse. <laughs> <laughs> right. But what does it mean to get it in control? Like, yeah, what yeah. is that? What is in control mean? And, and so this is part of it is that you have to be aware of these breathing patterns. So we know that when our demand for oxygen exceeds what we can supply, we're hyperventilating, right? So what is that? Well, the easiest way to learn these concepts is running. The easiest way, without a doubt, because what runners do is they monitor their cycle of breath for every number of footsteps that they take. And so Fraser, Froning, myself, Tia, we, we all run four steps for one cycle of a breath. Okay. So will you always exhale on an impact, it'll be the right foot or the left foot. So one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, right? A four count. 
when the demand for oxygen, right, let's say we increase our intensity, when that demand for oxygen is now exceeding a four count, we have to go down to a three count, right? But in a three count where you're one, two, one, two, one, two, we're now exceeding the demand for oxygen, meaning we're hyperventilating. That's a sign that you're now out of control of your breath. When you're at a three count, you should either go down to a two count and cross the finish line or slow down. So one of the things that I commented on in a podcast I did years ago with Froning, he asked me who's the smartest in the sport. And I said, it's Matt Frazier. And it was just a response. Well, Rich, let's face it, he's got a degree in exercise science and he's one of the smartest in the sport, but I've made that comment in a podcast and he was like looking at me. And the thing that I always admire about Rich is that he wants to learn. Like, what do you mean? And I said, well, do you realize that Frazier can look six lanes over in the middle of a competition and he watches someone's chest move? (gasps) One, two, three, (gasps) one, two, three, (gasps) one, two, three, right? Well, what if he sees this? (gasps) And you got another five minutes to go. He knows that that athlete is not in control and they're going to have to slow down. That is how smart Matt Frazier is. And so what we want to know is we want to know when we're in control and out of control. But to answer your question about the nasal breathing, this is something that um, has become a distraction in CrossFit in the sense that people think that they need to do it during a workout. The problem is this, is that even if you have a perfect nasal airway, which Meaning I mean, it's not, obstru- right? So a lot of people it's obstructed by, let's say yeah. a deviated septum, but if it's perfect, if your intensity goes above 60% of your VO2 max, your aerobic capacity, you can't deliver enough oxygen. So what you're doing is essentially putting yourself into a hyperventilation state where you're not getting enough. So what happens is, is that you're forced to slow down. So it'd be the equivalent of you trying to do intervals, 400 meter intervals around the track and breathe through a straw or a training mask, right? You're not going to get enough air. So in, as a result of that, you're going to be forced to slow. Essentially you're training your body to hurt real bad and you're training your muscles to run slow, which is a mistake. If you're training your muscles to run fast, then what do you need to do? You need to run fast. In order to run fast, you need maximum oxygen absorption. That's what you need. So the only way to get it at 60% or higher is through your mouth. So the next time I'm told to do nasal only 5K, I need to really bring an oxygen tank around with me, pop pop my mask on and hit the brakes, start running for my 5K. (laughs) That's absolutely. So that's the thing is that you, that's why you, every workout, the athlete needs to know the purpose. Yeah. Because you could do a 5K nasal breathing. You just have to do it slow. Yeah. Which that has some value. But if I'm coaching somebody and it's two times per week, that is very, very low on the list. Yeah, yeah. It's priorities, like I guess. You have um, to. I was reading about your coaching. You mentioned Froning there. I was reading about you coaching him. And I guess similar to Kalipa, like his sprints were amazing and his speed was amazing but his like longer distance was letting him down i think the triple three highlighted that um way back i think you worked with him to improve that but i guess 
like my question is the opposite. So like say when you start a CrossFit or if there's more like endurance based athletes who are used to doing like marathons or half marathons, is the converse true then that instead of working those longer intensities that you would have done with say Kalipa and Froning that they need to do, they need to slowly taper down their distance and taper up their intensity from what they're used to doing like so i got a couple of messages from people who are coming from doing marathons and stuff and they're wondering like how do i improve my 600 meter time or how do i improve my 400 meter time so i guess is it that they need to like their graph needs to cross of you know distance going down and intensity going up from what they're used to that's a great question but the answer is yes that that's what they absolutely need to be doing that that these they've identified their weakness um just like Kalipa and froning you know what i did is you have to quantify it so it's mm. really important that you quantify strengths and weaknesses so that athletes buy into the process and a lot of times coaches just force content and there's no explanation behind it and you'll always get an athlete that looks over your shoulder for something you know more shiny because you're you're just barking more orders with no substance and so you need to quantify strengths and weaknesses um, and especially in this sport when when people don't have unlimited time you have to know should like Julie Fouché that was an athlete that you know when I started with her um, in 2014 and she was my pick to win the games in 15 until she popped her Achilles. But she was an athlete that ran a, a 472 seconds and she ran a mile in around six minutes. Her speed was her limitation, not her endurance, not her aerobics. She was incredible in longer time domains. Her ability to clear fatigue, world-class. I mean, it was just, she was an incredible athlete, but it was her intensity that limited her. So what did we focus on? We focused on her speed. We knew that in order for her to be somewhat competitive in speed-based workouts, she had to get that 400 time from 72 down to 66. Mm. And so we worked on it. And five months later, she went to the track and, and um, she ran a 64. Um, so that was in April of 2015. What we have to do is focus the priority. Now with Julie, you would never just ignore her endurance because that's her skill. You maintain, like I mentioned earlier with Katrin, you always maintain an area, you never leave it behind. You will always come back and dose it with a stimulus so that you maintain it. If you stop, it goes back to homeostasis. You've yeah. lost that adaptation. The other thing I would say about marathon runners is like if they, if, if they were interested in coming into the gym or they were members of the gym and what they're doing is CrossFit twice a week as an accessory, right? Which is a perfectly acceptable, it's matter of fact, it's an incredible option. Yeah. But a lot of marathon runners are there. They don't understand the value proposition. They don't understand why they should come in. They don't. And, and part is, is that, I think coaches or affiliate owners don't know how to, to pitch what they're doing. You, you have to recognize the mindset. Like if I asked you, like if a marathoner walked in the door and they want to do marathons, then what do you think they're looking for? They want to get faster, right? Mm. That's the only thing they care about. So whatever you say to them about nutrition, mobility, it's blah, they don't even care. Tell me how you're going to make me fast mm. and it needs to resonate. And so what you have to assume is, is that that athlete is already maximizing the potential 
of their running muscles. But this is where when we talk about, you know, that, that recovery and lactate clearance, what about their other muscle groups? What about their other non-running muscles? What if those other muscles through the protocols of CrossFit you can improve their ability to clear lactate. So when that marathon runner is actually running hard and creating lactic acid in their blood and it's going into their upper body or their other larger muscle groups, what if through the protocols of CrossFit that you can improve those muscles' ability to clear that, that lactate? Hmm. Could their legs do more work? Well, absolutely they could. So that's one of the reasons why you should be in this gym. The other is, is that if they're over 40 years old, marathon runners stride length gets cut by 50%. Well, why? Because they they lose lean muscle mass. They lose their strength. They lose their ability to generate force, power. How are you going to maintain that? You know what we're going to do is we're going to put you on a strength-based protocol that is going to help you maintain that lean muscle mass. And we're also going to work on your range of motion so that you don't lose that 50%. And oh, by the way, as a consequence of you getting more lean muscle mass, your VO2 max is going to go up, which means your overall marathoning is going to go up. Yeah. So that's where that's, CrossFit... That's your sales they, background coming out. Immediately, you've, you've sold the marathon runner. <laughs> but that's where it's like, we, what CrossFit provides for every athlete is a solution because we're experts in movement. And so if you have a surfer that goes into your gym, they're going to sit there and go, what's, what's the value proposition? Yeah. Like, what is it? Well, what's the number one injury in your sport? Well, it's blown ACLs. And why is that? Well, because when we're going down on a wave, we'll hit some chop. And because of the angle of our back foot, it will just pop it. Do you do any type of leg-based training? Well, no, because we don't actually, we paddle with our arms. So it's swimming-based. Yeah, but what if we improve the leg's ability to clear fatigue while you're paddling out in a lineup and so you have less blood lactate and so when you go to stand on that big wave, you're less wobbly because of that lactate, meaning you're more stable. Oh, oh. And that's where we, that's why I say CrossFit and the solution that it provides is just beginning to touch all these other sports because whether it's sports or professions, we are so good at movement yeah um like okay so i guess recovering from resistance training is you know the advice is that you recover you rest you don't overtrain certain muscle groups like you don't want to overload something and then you know injure it or you know you need to give the muscle time to grow i guess like if you're if Mm -hmm. you're providing a stimulus is the same true with your cardiovascular system? So it could the same be said where, you know, there's a limit on how much you should run or how much you should, you know, row or bike or whatever that you need to give, you know, your lungs, your diaphragm, your heart and everything a chance to recover between sessions as well. That's a great question. So part of it is, is that it obviously depends on the goals of the athlete. But if we look at CrossFit athletes, so in training someone who is wanting to do a broad range of things and become great at them, then we have to be careful of what's called this interference effect. So an interference effect is is, um, something where you do too much of one thing and it interferes with the performance in another area. Meaning if you do too much running, it's going to interfere with your strength. But what's interesting about interference effect is that 
no one has been able to quantify what is the optimal balance, yeah. right? Everybody can turn around after the fact and say, oh, that, that, that volume interferes. But one of the things that I have learned in, in what I do um, is by running two times per week, it actually becomes complementary. Um, and, and, every, and, and proof of that is every athlete that I've worked with has, has improved their strength, meaning their strength numbers have gone up. Like Froning has famously said after winning the games four times, that by us doing you know, no more than 6,000 meters of running in a workout, and we would only run two times per week, and most of it was at lower intensity, I mean, we would maintain his, his, his 60 second, 400 meter time, but it wasn't a target, it was just maintenance. But he it said that every single one of his lifts went up 10 weeks later. His vertical leap went from 31 to 33 inches. And the reason partially is because Rich, when he lifts heavy, all of us, when we lift heavy, we must recruit all of our available fibers, our slow twitch and our fast twitch fibers. But remember, if you don't train a particular muscle fiber, then its ability to be recruited is reduced. Yeah. So meaning its rate of recruitment, the speed it's recruited, but also the percentage of recruitment of those available fibers are, are lower. So running presents an incredible value because you're supporting your structure, which is most of the things that you're doing in the gym. If you actually train and develop and overload your slow twitch file fibers to create adaptation, now instead of 50% of your available fibers available, you now have, let's say, 80% of those yeah. fibers, which is going to increase your strength. The other thing is, is that if you looked at a froning, what he always focused on was speed, strength, power, short time domains. Well, the average athlete has a relationship in their body, their structure of 50% fast twitch fibers and 50% slow. That's the general population. Like I'm an, a unique endurance athlete. I'm 88% slow twitch. That's why I can do long time domains well. It's a, a genetic um, defect. Yeah. Um, Usain Bolt has a genetic defect on the opposite side, right? He's 90% fast. That's why he's so fast. Yeah. But average is 50-50. Well, imagine if you never do any low intensity aerobic slow twitch training, then that means that you just left 50% of your available capacity passive. It's yeah. not available to you. So you have to, as athletes, look at the entire structure and make sure nothing's being left behind. Um, but you also need to be recognizing how the body functions. And if you want to get stronger, and you're a general fitness enthusiast, you've got to make sure that you have all of those fibers available to make that, those, those heavy lifts. Yeah. It's important. For the average yeah. gym goer then, like say me going to the gym like five, maybe six days a week, going maybe once a day with like work and you know other things in the way, like the people who aren't professional athletes and don't have like a 12 hour window with which to train in. Like, is it, is it feasible to, uh, or, or is it best practice, I suppose, to train your aerobic capacity separately and regularly from workouts in order to improve it? Like say, even I know since lockdown, I know my running has improved because I've been forced to run. I had like no alternative. So it was like, right, yeah. oh shit, I just have to go and run. So like, I suppose I'm wondering when normality resumes, is one day a week 
with the longer jaunt and then one day a week with a bit more intensity or maybe like some Tabata sprints or something, is that enough to improve or maintain? Or is it a case that you'd, you know, should people, should, should the responsibility fall at like gym owners to program this stuff so that like, I don't need to worry about it outside of the gym. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question. So two things, what in, in terms of the, the, the programming for athletes, um, if we look at the, let's just say that we, we, we look at um, the intensity of, of doing a weightlifting workout, right? A heavy strength-based piece. And then at the start of a class, and then what we do is we go into a, a, um, a running workout type workout at the end. So what happens during the strength is you're going to fatigue fatigue and overload your fastest of the fast twitch fibers, right? They're going to be needed to make that lift occur. And the problem with the fast, uh, the fastest of the fast fibers is that they don't have an ability to endure. They don't have any capacity. So you overload them and you need a substantial amount of recovery time in order for them to, to, to be able to perform again. In addition, we have a neurological fatigue associated with that. So by design, if we wanted to do a workout that was strength in the beginning, we will fatigue all those fastest of the fast so that when we go and do the second workout, the, let's say it's a 12 minute, you know, Metcon of some form, mostly involving running, you will not even have fast twitch fibers available to you because they're still fatigued from the lift. Mm. So by design, you are going to force an athlete to run slow because they have no other option. Yeah. You don't have to go outside and yell at them to slow down and make it a slow twitch-based workout. So it's a smart thing to do because CrossFitters, their weakness is they think higher intensity is better. <laughs> and, and so by design, what you're going to do is take that fast twitch recruitment out by doing a heavy strength-based piece or a high-intensity piece in the beginning. So that's where, but you would never want to combine a high strength into a sprint because they're, it's not possible. They're already tapped. You've you've overloaded those in the first piece. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So the, what I would do is, is, is if I was a coach in programming, um, I would incorporate, um, I'll give you a good example. So I was at Rob Forte's gym in, in Melbourne, Australia. And I said, can I coach your class? And there was 40 people in the class and he's like, well, what's up? And I said, well, I see your strength piece here. And they were doing like a building up to a five rep snatch. And I said, I'd like to take after that and let's do a, a, a seven round workout, um, where it was seven snatches into, I wanted to run down to the, uh, the business park and back, which was roughly 300 meters, seven rounds. And, and I said, what I wanna do though, is I wanna tell them if they miss at any point in those seven reps, they have to start the whole workout over again. And so we gave them, based upon their earlier lift, the strength-based lift, we gave them a percentage of like, everything was 85% of their five to do seven reps. And, um, but we made it so that they knew where the focus was. They, yeah. Everybody was focusing on the seven reps. And we said, as soon as you come back in the gym, you got to grab the barbell and go any delay. You start over Yeah. at the end of the workout. I asked people, does anybody know how far they ran? 
and not one single out of 40 people knew. They didn't know because the focus wasn't on the run. It was the run was told as slow as you want to go, but you miss that lift. It's all over and you start over and no one got the consequence. You know, no one failed, but it distracted them and it gave them the proper stimulus in the run. And I had some young kids say, well, what if it takes me four minutes to do the run? I'm like, great. Take six minutes. Doesn't matter to me. More time, the better. Yeah. And so that's where we as coaches can outsmart athletes by changing the emphasis. Go yell at them to slow down. They'll be looking at you going, what is he talking about? I've never heard a coach tell me slow down. Yeah. That's important though, you know, to, to, to do. And, and I think like another example would be is like, Coaches have this skill set of, of looking at people and, you know, like if I asked you about a thruster, you know, a thruster has two different movements, got a squat and a press. So where's your weakness? Do you know what your weakness is? Oh, the squat. Okay. So what we're going to do is, you know what, on Monday, we're going to do a squat. I mean, a thruster workout, but Peter, you know what you're going to do is you're going to get on this side of the room that says my squat is my weaker part. So you're going to do two front squats and one press. And that is one thruster to you. Chris, yeah. you said your press is your weakness. You're on this side. You're going to do one squat and two presses. What we want to do is we want to get athletes to understand that we're targeting specific adaptations around their weaknesses. And that's what's going to get them to come back. So even after that Rob Porte workout, I explained to people, you know what, y'all told me you didn't like running and you were all nervous that I was coaching, but you had no idea you ran 2,100 meters in this workout. Yeah. I think, I think pretty quickly speaking for myself by day two, I'd be lying about what my weakest part of the thruster was. I'd be like, Oh, press. I'm terrible at press. I need to do three presses and no squats. <laughs> but that's where like, like we were talking about push-ups earlier. Yeah. Imagine if I said to you, okay, so, you know, you did this workout last week and you know, you did, you did push-ups, or let's say you did bench press at, at 95 pounds for, you know, 12, let's say 10 seconds max reps. And then what you did is you racked it and then you just did a PVC active recovery, nice and slow. So let's say that's what you did. And I said, okay, so hey, this week, what I want to do is I'm going to do the exact same workout, but I need to know which which of those last week was the challenge for you? Do you feel it was the strength, meaning the the bench press at 95 pounds or was it really recovery where do you think you need to be focusing on and so let's just say that you said you know what i really struggled with the stamina the longer time domain because i had you do five minutes of that unbroken all right so what we're going to do is then we're going to then you said the strength portion wasn't the focus it's the recovery portion so we're going to leave the strength alone it's still going to be um, 10 seconds, max reps, 95 pounds. But last week you used a PVC pipe on your slow recovery for the remainder of the minute. Instead of that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a 10 pound, um, piece of PVC and you're going to be moving 10 pounds of weight during your active recovery. And now five rounds unbroken. So it'd be a total of five minutes. We come back a week later. I ask you, you know, what do you want to work on? What do you feel your limitation was? You pick. Do I as a coach really care what you pick? Yeah, yeah. I don't. Because once you pick, you now have committed to a decision versus me telling you what to do. Yeah. 
And that's how you get an athlete to own their workout. Nobody likes being told what to do. It's a self-defense mechanism. So if you pick, now you own it. Yeah. It's your obligation, not mine. And so that's why we give athletes two choices. Pick. Yeah. Take a pick. And now they own it. Does it matter what they pick? Nope. I just want them to come back tomorrow because if I can get them to come back tomorrow and the day after, I know I can make them great. And that's our goal. Our coaching goal is retention. Yeah. Um, look, Chris, like I said, I could talk to you all day. I've absolutely <laughs> loved this. I really appreciate you coming on and giving up your time. So thanks so much. Yeah, no, I, you know what? I, it's always good during these times to have an opportunity to get on a podcast and I've always been a huge fan. I, I, you know, I do all of my own seminars and I travel the world and talking to people. And even during COVID, I did, whew, I don't even know, 40, 50 Zoom classes around the world. And it is a way for us to kind of get a pulse on what's going on and the direction. Um, and so, no, for me, I find, like, especially this, your questions are so solid that I find it very valuable. Oh, that's um, good, thanks. Yeah, if you're, um, you know, one of the things that we talked about, you know, like that sprinting thing and marathon runners, if, if they want some, you know, they could s want some ideas on workouts, just, you know, they could send in an email, info at aerobiccapacity.com. And, you know, if I have something, I'm happy to just forward, oh, you know, good. some little printable sheets so that they can get some ideas. Um, yeah, for me, it's if I have workouts that I've written and it's easy for me to flip an email, I'll do it. Um, yeah. I think that's the beauty of the sport though, is, is, is the community and we should all be yeah, willing no, to great. try and help. So that's why I appreciate your community. I mean, your podcast and who you've had on, it's a huge honor. Your list is like a who's who. It's really incredible. Oh, thank you.